Welcome to Becoming Parents Podcast. I'm Jen Taylor, your host. I am mom of 18, and you can find me on momsrunningit.com. Remember, give a shout out to those who are brave enough to share their stories with us on how they have become parents. Let's dive right in. Hello and welcome to Becoming Parents. I have Leslie here, author of You Can't Eat Love, which as soon as I read the title, I knew exactly what the book was about. Welcome. How are you today? I am great. But you know, I have to say, I have been stalking you for quite some time <laughs> because <laughs> the first time I ran across you, I can't remember the exact event or circumstance or whatever. I was absolutely fascinated with your story. Um, mom of 18, holy Toledo. But in addition to just that, you are such an amazing, inspirational person that um, I am. I don't know what the term is these days, but I am geeking out that I actually get to talk to you. <laughs> That's, it's so funny because, you know, I've been around for a long time and you just don't know. You don't know that people are that people are watching or that you're making a difference. And so that I read that on your um, information that you sent to me that like, how do we, how do we know each other? Where do we connect? Because that means a lot to me. And you're like, I've watched you. And that's the first time somebody has signed up to be a guest because <laughs> they, you're the first one that has signed up because you watched me. So that's really fun. Well, and like I said, I was so excited to be able to actually talk to you because I feel as if, you know, I, I know you, you know, we're best friends and everything, yeah. but uh, we are, <laughs> I just haven't gotten to know you yet. And so that's what today is for. So that's yes, really good. Yes. It's been that's a one-sided, really you know, relationship, but that's okay. That's okay. That It is okay. That happens so much. I think with, with lots of people where like I follow people and I feel like I know them. And I don't. And so it can be a little awkward when I finally say hello, because for me, it's not the first time. Um, we're going to I'm going to jump into your story. And we have like you have a book, you've been on podcast, you have a website. All of your links are in the description. So in every description, wherever this is, people can find you and connect with you. And I like to give that as a reminder. But I want to jump into your parenting journey and the bullet point, which like I have a few bullet points and I love yours. And the one that stands out to me the most though, and it's why I titled this the way I did is that you lost your mother two weeks before you gave birth to your child. I, I, I don't know if it was your first child. Yeah. It was my first one, my oldest one, her so first grandchild too. Let's jump into that because obviously um, you're pregnant, very, very, very pregnant. And so kind of get catch me up to speed a little bit with the relationship with your mom and that pregnancy and then losing her at that point. Well, I, I'm the oldest of six kids. And um, as you know, it can be difficult for a, a parent to have a relationship with children. And of course, you know, we go through the teenage years. And, and then um, when I graduated from high school and went off to college, my parents moved to Alaska. So that really was the last time that I lived with my family. Yes, I did go visit them at Christmas and summertime, but they were living basically on what could have been, might have been another continent at that point in time. So while we had a relationship, it was more like um, an acquaintance relationship. And here I was, I found out that I was going, you know, I got married, 
Um, my mother got sick, found out she was very, very ill with cancer shortly after I got married. So for the next two years, she essentially was, you know, fighting the cancer. Well, then we found out we were going to have the baby and literally two to three days later, the cancer severed her spinal cord and she was paralyzed from the armpits down. So I was never pregnant, if you can understand that, because during the entire time that I was expecting, my mother was dying. So you can just imagine where my focus was, what my fears were and all this. And a lot of regret started coming out of that because I believed that once I had the baby, you know, that we would be able to develop a relationship very similar to what my mother had with my grandmother and what I even had with my grandmother. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of expectation and I lived, you know, the, and he ended up being born early. I mean, imagine that I, I wasn't under any stress or anything like that. Um, but, you know, just imagine I'm, I'm watching all of these dreams, these hopes, these expectations just, you know, evaporating uh, in the in the horror that cancer is. And then she died. She was struggling to live to see him be born and she just couldn't do it. Um, and so she died. And then two weeks later, he was born. And then you're thrown in. And I recognize, realize I'm not the first person that this has happened to. But you know what? When you're in the midst of something, it doesn't really make any difference if you're the first, the millionth, the 10 millionth. It's happening to you. And your experience is not like anybody else's experience because we are not the same people. Um, but I never had an opportunity to really grieve that death, just as I really didn't have an opportunity to fully immerse myself in the celebration of the birth. And it took me over 30 years to finally grieve her death. Uh, yeah. I mean, I really can't imagine that, that it's happening almost at exactly the same time and you wouldn't be able to do, I mean, separating all that would be pretty impossible. So I completely understand why it took so much for you to, and so long for you to grieve the death death. And also that's one part of it, right? Grieving your mom's death is one part that took you a long time. And I understand that having the baby though, you can put the grief on hold. It's never going to go away. You can address it whenever you want, but the baby is very live and in person. What was that like? Like you had to recover from the delivery. You, you had to bond with this baby. So how much do you feel like that changed your ability to do that the way you would have in different circumstances? Well, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I'll be okay. very, very honest. Yeah. I had no clue what I was doing. I had no clue what I was supposed to feel. I had no clue what, you know, activities. I, I mean, I had zero clue. And uh, while my mother-in-law ended up being there because she arrived in town for a baby shower that didn't happen because baby ended up being born, um, she wasn't helpful either. And she was not a warm, caring, fuzzy person. Um, so, you know, everybody in my husband, my husband and his family, they were all focused on, on the baby and my family was so destroyed, you know, they were focused on their grief and I was left sitting there going, what, what is it I'm supposed to be doing? I seriously, I had zero problem. And I look back and I 
I probably did slide into some postpartum depression that was compounded by the depression that I was already experiencing. But I look back and I, I um, laugh with a lot of kindness because um, less than a week after the baby was born, I'm taking a shower, I'm putting on full makeup, I'm putting on, you know, dresses, I'm putting on pantyhose, I'm cramming my feet into shoes, because um, the water weight had uh, been, I mean, I had over 30 pounds of water weight on me and my feet had spread. And I was determined that I was not going to give up my uh, Ferragamo shoes. So I was cramming my feet into my Ferragamo shoes, you know, to get them to squish back. And I was putting on pearls and I'm doing all this. And I was living the way that the only way that I thought that I should be living, which was like, you know, leave it to Beaver's mother or Donna Reed from the Donna Reed show. Yes, you guys can Google or YouTube Donna Reed and leave it to Beaver. But that was the only role model that I could come up with. And I didn't have anybody to ask what is it I'm really supposed to be doing? What am I really supposed to be feeling? And I focused on keeping the house clean, you know, making sure that meals were prepared and all this stuff. And, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I made it up. And I tell people all the time, I made it up as I went along because I had nobody to ask. I want to comment on something that you just said. You said that you possibly were having postpartum depression on top of the depression you were already experiencing. So I want to expand on that just a little. I don't think it's something that we talk about nearly enough. And the other thing that I want to expand upon is that you, you mentioned in your, it's in the show notes that babies don't come with an owner's manual, neither do children. <laughs> and I don't think there should be an owner's manual because every child is so different and every parent is so different. And then you add the, the, dad and the mom and like that's different and so there's no way you could say oh this is what you do this is how to do it that doesn't exist because every situation's different um so i want to talk a little bit about like the manuals and just doing it also what year was your son born because people don't realize how much the generation matters so when was he born 1984 okay see so I graduated high school in 1988, so I have a reference to that. 1984, where we women were not banding together, and we still don't, but definitely not then. And uh, there wasn't as much information, and you were still I, like Leave It to Beaver. I know what I know what all of that is. I watched it, so um, yeah, there was no information. There was no internet. There were no like group Zoom calls. There was nothing. We didn't have the same support then that we do now. And so you were definitely lost. So let's first talk about the depression. And second, talk about like you were just doing what you thought you were supposed to do and babies don't come with an owner's manual. I don't know if you if people realize this, but we're all winging it. <laughs> Which is the truth. Yeah, you know, and that that was what I finally um, later, you know, figured out. And I tell my kids, I said, I'm really, really sorry, but I made it up as I went along. But one of the reasons that I say, you know, babies don't come with owner's manuals is I'm one of those people who expect to follow the rules, expect to follow the guidelines, expect to do all these things. And here I'm thrown into a situation where you might as well have tossed me into the middle of a ginormous ocean for all the help and support that I had. Now, understand, I am not 
saying that, you know, I should have had more help and I should have had more support. And I hate that word should. I'm on a campaign to remove it from the dictionary. But the, the truth of the matter is I was thrown into this giant ocean and I'm a rule follower. I'm, you know, give me some guidelines, a framework to work in. And I had absolutely nothing. In addition, as you said, Back in 1984, the phones weren't even cordless at that point in time. They were still attached to the walls. Um, answering machines um, hadn't even been really, you know, invented and, and were, you know, quite novel. But um, you didn't, I didn't know, people didn't know where to go for help. So you turn to these books that are written by, pardon me, men. Right. that are based on some studies, you know, Dr. Spock and that kind of yep. thing. And, and I, I didn't like the information that was there. It didn't make sense to me when I would try and have a conversation with the doctor. I felt as if I wasn't being heard. Um, I just, you know, I really struggled. And I'm not saying that today people don't struggle. What I am saying is, please, you're not struggling alone reach out, don't do what I did because I didn't know how to reach out for help. I had no idea how to do it. And truthfully, it was available. It's simply that at that point in time, access to information was not as available as it is today. Yeah. That's that is true. And the Dr. Spock book was the number one book and it's terrible. And uh, yeah, we didn't have information. I think people I think women struggle just as much today as they did before. And part of it, part of their struggle now might be that they're overloaded with information instead of when we started our journey. My first daughter was born in 92. When we first started and had we had no we had a lack of information or a lot of misinformation. And you were looking for that generational support that often didn't exist for us. Um, and so, you know, that made it hard for us, the lack of support and information. Now it's like they're overloaded with information. So like you're never, my, my daughter that has little ones, she's like, I don't ever, I'm never going to do it right. Because no matter what path you choose, there's all these people telling you how wrong it is. So, but it was, it, it's a real thing. And women still don't depend on each other. We still don't support each other like we should. And we still don't talk enough about, the depression that a lot of women feel after they have a baby on top of depression, maybe they're feeling outside of having a baby. And so, you know, it's really sad to me that that stuff isn't, isn't being shared more and we're not more of a support. So you didn't have family support and you're dealing with grief. How many kids did you have and how close together were they? Um, well, I have the two older boys and they are two years and a little couple of months apart. And then I got divorced and then remarried and I have a third son uh, in 95. Um, and, but again, again, I was alone. Um, I didn't have the support because by that point in time, I had taught myself that I had to do it alone, mm -hmm. that I could not, that it was um, inappropriate. It was weak, you know, to uh, ask for outside help. And one of the things that I talk about in, in my book, You Can't Eat Love, is that taking care of yourself is not selfish. And it took me so many years to recognize that. And I repeatedly 
talk to people and in the book, put your own oxygen mask on first. Right. And one of the things that I've come to recognize, and trust me, I was part of the women's lib movement. I was, you know, supporting them. Let's go. Let's go. I believed that everything was going to become whatever they anticipated it believing, you know, becoming, and it didn't happen because we have not figured out a way to come together and support each other. Right. So I say to people, you know, society is trying to impose certain things on us. And it is up to us as individuals to ignore what society is saying and to say, you know something, it's okay for us to feel sad. It is okay for us to feel frustrated. It is okay for us to feel overwhelmed. Nobody is going to get this parenting thing right. And it is not intended to be gotten right. The best thing that we can do is love ourselves enough so that we have love to give to these children that are put into our care so that we can teach them how to love themselves so that they in turn can learn to love the rest of the world. Because it's only when we are, and I'm not going to use the word selfish, when when we are retro introspective enough to recognize that taking care of ourselves is not selfish, that we must be filling up our gas tank. Only then are we going to see real change when it comes to parenting. Absolutely. And I talk about this a lot. Also, I think we have this idea that like self-care, self-care is so overused, you know, now that it seems like a bad thing. And we, we put all this pressure on ourselves that we need to go spend $300 on a 90 minute massage. And it, it's not that, I mean, it is that it can be that, but that's not what's going to get you through hiding chocolate in your bathroom. is what, <laughs> Like self-care is not just these big things. It's not the pedicure, right? It's how we treat ourselves. It's, I think everything in life is compound interest and com all compound interest is, is small, easy, daily actions that add up over time. And that's the chocolate that's hidden in the drawer in your bathroom or your bedroom. Or it's the fact that sometimes you're in your closet with the door shut crying. That, that's what it looks like. And I think women have this idea that one, they're selfish and two, it's got to be some big monumental thing that costs a lot of money that we can post on social media. And that's, it's so opposite that it's those little tiny things we do all the time that reminds us that we're a priority. And yeah. so, yeah. Well, and, and one of the things that I talk about repeatedly is, you know, celebrate the small wins. Celebrate the small wins, because one of the things that I discovered, one of the things that I learned was, um, for example, you're having a bad day. I mean, who, who doesn't have a bad day? Mm -hmm. You get small children running around. You can have a bad day. And I would catch myself saying nothing but no. And I would be when I would come to the realization that the only words coming out of my mouth were no. I said, OK, we need to figure out a way to reframe how we are making these statements. And so I would start reframing instead of saying no and being in a negative fashion. Well, fast forward to this many years, what I've learned and what I've refined is we can reframe um, discipline. We can reframe correction. We can do all these things positively. 
if we will acknowledge and um, accept and reward the things that we want to have continue, then we will see them continue. If we ignore, totally, absolutely ignore the things we want to stop, they will stop. Because think about the kid in class, the one that keeps acting up. Why do they keep acting up? Because they're getting rewarded. You may say, well, you know, they're getting hollered at all the time. You know, they're ending up in timeout or whatever. Yes, it's a reward. Your brain does not know the difference between a good reward and a bad reward. It simply knows that it is being rewarded. So one of the things that I try to do, try to encourage people with is look for the good things. For example, if you've got children and you know they're dropping their towels all over the place, if you notice that one day they happen to pick the towel up and put it where you want it to go, it may not be folded properly. It may not be hung properly. Who the flip cares really and truly in the big picture? But you notice that they hung it up. Comment, so-and-so, I noticed that you hung your towel up. I want to let you know I really appreciate it. Does that sound crazy? Does that sound, you know, whatever? Yes, but you know what? When you start noticing the things that they are doing that you want them to do, it doesn't make any difference how correct or perfect it is. They will start doing more. And I, will quit looking at you sideways when you make the comment. I, re I realized also something you have to realize is like, if I'm sweeping the floor compared to a child sleep sweeping the floor, they're never going to do it at my level. They, they're never going to do it. So actually what they're doing at their level is perfect for that situation. So folding the towel or anything, anything that gets done, you're talking about, I mean, some of your rec some of your suggestions, which are great is to learn to laugh and to use positive reinforcement. It's not about how well it was done. It was about recognizing that there was an effort that was made. And you're right, that makes them want to do it more. And then they'll do it, they will do it better over time just because they're doing it more often. Because you're not, kids aren't good at this stuff. Some husbands aren't that great at this stuff. I mean. Well, you can retrain your husband if you use the positive reinforcement. Trust me, you can, you can. Yeah. Uh, but when we are constantly picking at the negative stuff, everybody gets exhausted. Everybody gets so tired. And one of the things that I figured out, because I'm a lazy parent. Okay, remember, I didn't have anybody to help me with this, but I made up all kinds of rules. I'm a lazy parent. I will admit it. I tried the timeout thing. It didn't work. For me, it did not work. I was exhausted trying to remember who was in timeout for what time and how long and what the next step was and all that kind of stuff. So what I ended up doing, because, you know, at the end of the day, you need to do what you need to do in order to have peace of mind and not feel as if your face is constantly squinched into the scowl and your kids aren't running from you when they see you. So what I ended up doing is I put stuff in timeout. Hmm. If they're fighting over a toy, I would say, you know what? Sounds to me like the toy is having a hard time following the rules right now. So the toy is going to go in timeout until it understands how to follow the rules and it can play without, you know, getting into an argument. Kids will accept that. They understand, you know, something wasn't following the rules. 
chaos erupted. It needs to go, you know, sit and settle down for a while. They get back to what they're doing without any great big giant hoorah. I'm not setting timers on the microwave. I'm not, you know, chasing people down because they won't stay in place. I'm getting back to what it is I'm doing. And as time moves forward, you know, my kids came to understand that they were never going to be put in timeout, but stuff dad gum sure was. You know, the Nintendo was going in timeout. And I had a friend who was struggling with her daughter over a cell phone. And she was so frustrated with the timeouts and the groundeds and all this stuff. I said, stop, stop, put the phone in timeout. Tell her the phone doesn't know how to behave. So the phone is going to go in, into timeout until it figures out how to behave. You're addressing the behavior. You're addressing the problem. You're not calling the kid bad. You're not doing anything like that, but you're giving, everybody is getting a break from whatever it was that was causing an issue. And then people have time to sort it out. So I, like I said, you know, some people timeout work didn't work for me. I put stuff in timeout. It made my life easier, so much easier. I thought that was so great when I read that. I love that idea. It takes all of the pressure off of the, the kid. Right. And it takes all the pressure off the parent too. Yep. I want to wrap up because I feel like we haven't talked about this a lot. Like I said, your website, Facebook and Instagram is all the links are all in the description and people can find you. So the, the, I, I do want you to mention the easiest way to get in touch with you, but you wrote a book and your journey into losing weight and becoming healthy. How connected to that was, how connected was that to your parenting? So I want you to touch a little bit on that story to kind of wrap up and let people know how the best way to find you. Well, my journey was actually um, applying all the things that I had done, you know, with raising my children, speaking to myself, learning to speak to myself kindly, um, observing how I was feeling and honoring those feelings. It, it really, it really was everything that I had done with raising my children. I simply didn't apply it to myself during that time. I didn't believe that I was worthy of being loved. I thought that I was missing love and only love I was missing was love for myself. So truthfully, all these little, cause I even put food in timeout, you know, some food doesn't know how to behave. So it's not allowed into my house. Same thing as with toys and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, if, of course you feel whatever. I mean, those are the words that I would use in speaking to my children. So truthfully, the journey is about how I, took all those things that I made up and applied to my children. And I simply started applying them to myself and went on that journey to learn to love myself. Um, but the other thing that it allowed me to do was it allowed me to finally grieve the loss of my mother. Uh, and that helped me to release a whole lot of things. And I, I would like to say to parents who are listening, if we can teach small children how to grieve loss, whether it's a broken toy, a stub toe, you know, whatever it is, if we can teach small children in the safety and confines of, of our home, surrounded by people who love and care and cherish them, then when they are faced with tremendous loss, they will have the tools, 
the skills and the ability to cope with it so that it doesn't take them over 30 years to grieve it. Because here's the problem. When we do not address emotions, especially grief, they come out sideways. They come out sideways. And the best way to reach me is through my website, which is youcanteatlove.com. And uh, there's links to Facebook, Instagram, everything there, including ways to just reach out to me if you want to send a message. And I would love to hear from you. Oh, thank you, Leslie. Thank you so much for being on. And I love all the connections to your grief and your parenting and your weight loss and get the book, guys, get some help, reach out to Leslie. Thank you so much for being on. Oh, well, thank you so much and keep doing what you're doing.